Pastor, it's great to be with you again. And can I just say, so this is my last day on campus, but it has been a real privilege uh, to be here at Covenant College. And I want to thank Dr. Caput and your president, who I know, and he emailed me to apologize that he couldn't be here. But that's fine. The president's life is unenviable, I think. <laughs> but uh, I wish that I had some time with each one of you. So, you know, each one of you, uh, not that you're the Messiah, but you're unique and remarkable, therefore. And I don't know if you know C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. You know it, okay? I see some of you nodding. If you don't know it, you should read it. He says a very remarkable thing, that in this world, created world, you will not look on anything more holy or glorious than your neighbor. Now, at this time of the year, that probably doesn't ring true, right? Because if your neighbor's your prof, and if your neighbor's that student who's really irritating you, well, you know, where is the glory? Okay. And so one way that we get ourselves even vaguely towards a position where we can see that is to uh, develop rich, still, quiet lives of prayer. And you may remember that I said in one of my talks that prayer is like a, a, a blazing fire, but it's hidden. And, you know, in our very extrovert, uh, texting, uh, image-driven culture, we're so enamored with the spectacular surface that it's very hard for us to privilege the hidden. And this is, uh, you know, uh, the glory of prayer is that it is hidden. And I don't think we should try and change that. But it means that it's something that uh, really we can't check on beyond a certain point. And so it gets, you know, to uh, the very deepest motivations of ours. Now, in my first talk, I suggested that if we want to retrieve a life of prayer, there's no one that we can attend to better than Jesus. And I just developed two points, very simple, but oh, that Bartholomew could get them right. And that is that Jesus prioritizes time alone with God. And that in the life of Jesus, prayer is not cerebral. It emerges from the heart. And the word that best captures that is that prayer is about communion with the Father and the Spirit. Now, what I want to do today is really take Jesus' example and ask, what does this mean for a prof or a staff member or a student at Covenant College? So an objection to this emphasis on prayer that I'm developing is, well, how does one do this? Amidst a busy pastorate, a demanding business life, the treadmill of teaching at a school like Covenant College or the treadmill of being a student or amidst bringing up young children. And my hunch is that if you've heard me talk, many of you, it would resonate, I think, because Jesus always does resonate with us very deeply. And you might find yourself saying, in principle, yes, but in practice, maybe not. So the first thing I want you to note is that there is a different commitment to prayer in the pastoral ministry of the priest or pastor in the church and us, okay? 
Like the apostles, the pastoral minister is set apart for prayer and word. And so one would or should expect the pastor to be more devoted to prayer than Christians in many other vocations. Now, if you think of the pastor or the priest or whatever you call them, they really are weird people, right? And, you know, it's such a weird thing that the flock of sheep do. So if you think of a church as a flock of sheep, what the sheep do is they're all busy in their different vocations, and they identify one or two or three of the sheep, and they say, look, you are our fellow sheep, but you seem to have particular gifts in what Jean Vianney beautifully calls announcing Jesus and in prayer, and in caring for the flock. And so what we're going to do is we will tithe, and we will ask you not to pursue vocations like ours, but to live in our midst and specialize in attending to prayer and the word. That is the role of the pastor amidst the sheep. Why? Well, the best description I've heard of this is from Eugene Peterson, who says that the role of the pastor is to keep God's people attentive to God. And so what should be happening at our churches, I'm not saying it is, okay, because churches are broken just like we are broken, and colleges are broken, and politics is broken, and economics is broken, but what should be happening is you know, a week of being a student at Covenant, especially at this time of the year, you know, you're starting to feel the strain. You wonder why you majored and what you majored in. You hadn't realized how dreadful your profs were until now, and so on and so forth. And so you start to feel very discouraged. And then you go to church on Sunday, and what the pastor should be doing is resituating you within the context of the grand drama of Scripture. The pastor, through word and sacrament and prayer, should be opening you up again to the overwhelming reality of what God has done for you in Christ. And so by the end of the service, and as my uh, aesthetician friend says, when we leave the church door, another week of worship begins. And so even amidst, if the church is functioning healthily, you shouldn't be leaving feeling guilty that you're not doing more church activities. You should be leaving with a tremendous sense of, oh my goodness, I lost sight of Jesus. And now another week of worship is beckoning. And then you should be saying, with George Bush, bring it on. Okay. <laughs> There's all sorts of things one can learn from these people. So, and you know, I think for those of you who are chaplains or uh, here at uh, uh, Covenant College or pastors, you know, uh, your, the weight of your vocation is big. And uh, we who are priests and ministers and pastors ought to have such a fertile prayer life that it almost flows out into the people of God almost something that is infectious. So we have to be a blazing fire which is deeply hidden.
and simply through contact with us and hearing our preaching and our pastoring, uh, the, the flock need to be, you know, warming themselves at that fire and catching fire themselves. So there is something distinct about the pastoral vocation, but nevertheless, correctly understood, all Christians are in the full-time service of God, and all vocations are part of the mission of the people of God, and all vocations are bared, called to bear witness to God, correctly understood. Witness, which I, I learned from my colleague Mike Goheen, uh, like mission is a holistic concept and includes but can never be reduced to verbal evangelism. Okay, so we, we want to acknowledge the uniqueness of the pastoral ministry, but we want to say that we're all in ministry. The word simply means service. And we're all in the full-time service of God, and whether your passion is chemistry or art or architecture or urban design or mathematics or social work or whatever, working with the poor, those are full-time vocations which ought to bear witness to Jesus. And so uh, the only way they can bear witness to Jesus ultimately is if we too are cultivating a hidden blazing fire of prayer. Now secondly, the distinctive emphasis on prayer in the pastoral vocation alerts us to the fact that prayer is never just individual but communal. And I think I mentioned this yesterday, but I sometimes tell my students that one way to know if you have a good pastor, now don't be naughty with this, but it is a really, really good test. Alas, I'm not confident that uh, hundreds of pastors would pass this test, is to go to your minister and to ask him or her to teach you how to pray. The pastor is there to keep the flock attentive to God, and one cannot do this without modeling and teaching the practice of prayer. And of course, one of the characteristic things that we do when we gather is to pray, whether that is prayers of intercession, praise or petition. And you remember Jesus' assertion that his father's house, the temple, is not designed to be a mall, but a place of prayer. Jesus' life and death alters forever the mediating role of the temple so that not surprisingly in the New Testament, apart from Jesus himself, the individual believer, the congregation, and the church as a whole are all described as a temple. And Paul Menea notes that the applicability of the image to all three derives from the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit signifies God's presence, and the Spirit's great joy is to point to Jesus so that individual Christians, the local congregation, the church as a whole, are places where God is present, and thus where people are in communion with Him. Okay, so you will know that you've bought into intellectualism or activism when you keep confessing that God is present, but you have no sense of God's presence. So one thing uh, in the Reformed tradition I think we need to recover is a nuanced biblical understanding of experience. 
So the reform tradition, which is, you know, the shadow side of the glories of the reform tradition is cerebralism, where it's all head knowledge, but often we have no experience of God. Okay, this is not a call for charismania, which is often just the mirror image of the reform tradition. And if you know philosophy, uh, within modernity, you have... Uh, you know, the rationalism and empiricism as major epistemologies, and that's what you get often in a distorted reform tradition, simply a cerebral rationalism. And then the reaction to that, which is simply a reaction within modernity, is romanticism, which is all about feeling. So both of these are problematic, the cerebralism and the emotivism. And we're not going for either of those. We're going for a deep uh, experience of God from the heart, which will include thoughts and emotions, but cannot be reduced to either. Now, thirdly, it should be noted that there are few ministries as ambitious as that of Jesus. So uh, on Sunday, uh, I heard excellent preaching on the transfiguration. And in Luke's Gospel, so you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's uh, Moses and Elijah symbolizing the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, and they are, are, are discussing with Jesus his forthcoming exodus. It's a very, very important word in the Greek there. And the point is this, that in the Old Testament, uh, Moses led the slaves out of Egypt as the exodus. Now, Peter wants, you know, typical Peter, right? Foot in it every time. Oh, Lord, this is such fun and so glorious. Let's build three tents. One for, you know, we'll stay up here. And, of course, Jesus can't stay up here because he must descend to continue his mission of exodus. But what Jesus is after is not the exodus of the Israelites from slavery, but he's after leading the whole creation in an exodus from sin. So there is no more ambitious mission than that of Jesus. And yet his entire ministry, as we saw, is centered in communion with the Father. So do you see the kind of irony when you and I, who don't have such a mission, but may be ambitious, and we want to be the best student at Covenant, or we want to go and do a doctorate in this, or we want to serve God amidst the poor. No matter how ambitious our goals are, they pale into insignificance against the ambition of Jesus. And yet such ambition, amidst such ambition, he prioritizes time alone with God and prayer from the heart. And so it's hard for me to see amidst all the challenges of our crazy culture and the busyness and the extroversion, that we shouldn't be doing the same. Now, I recognize that to balance prayer and the other demands of our lives is real, but we should hesitate before accepting that prayer simply has to fit in and around the other demands of our busy lives. So Jean Vanier tells the story, which I love, although I'm glad he didn't ask me this, of asking people if they pray. Oh, they say our lives are too busy. 
So then his reply is, well, I guess when you go on holiday, you must spend an awful lot of time in prayer. Okay, conversation over. And the obvious reason for careful reflection at this point is that it's profoundly ironic to be about our father's business when we have no time for our father. Now, fourthly, a thing we do well to recover is Luke's emphasis that successful ministry depends on prayer. Indeed, it is prayer that facilitates successful service of God. Now, some of you will be cringing at the word successful, and that's right, because the word is so easily filled today with the content of numbers, a large flourishing church, a driven church, pursuing growth at all costs, etc. By successful, I refer in contrast to ministries that embody the presence of Christ in his world. Ministries in which you and I as clay jars, broken but nevertheless receptacles for the Christ light, are daily and steadily carrying the Christ light into the darkness of the world where that light is so desperately needed. Now in the pastorate, this will involve a handling of the word and sacraments that leads to the disclosure of Jesus. Ministry that leads people into union with Jesus and so into participation in the very life of God. In other vocations, witness will be less direct, but just as real. And you know, if you want to look at this, I encourage you to look closely at prayer in Luke. Of all the Gospels, prayer, uh, Luke rarely foregrounds in very distinctive ways the issue of prayer. And the message of this is that it is prayer itself that facilitates the disclosure of Jesus. And alas, there are tons of reformed people who believe in tulip, if you know what that is. If you don't, I wouldn't, you know, spend like uh, 10 years worrying about it. But it's kind of the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation within the reformed tradition. So it is important, but it's not the heart. And uh, they believe all this, but in practice they are Pelagians. You know, that heresy in the early church where we achieve our own salvation. And this is uh, far too pervasive amidst Reformed Christians and evangelicals in general. Whereas one thing we learn from Luke is that if we are trying to disclose Jesus, whether it's in working with the poor or in economics or art or whatever, without prayer, we're cutting off the very power that will facilitate that disclosure. So it's very counterproductive. Indeed, it is an answer to prayer that the Spirit opens us and others to the reality of Jesus. And this is what the Spirit loves to do. So if we are genuinely concerned to minister, to serve in such a way that Jesus is disclosed to our people and to outsiders for who he is, then for the very sake of our service, we will make prayer a priority. We will seek to preach and to pastor, to serve in our particular vocation as did Jesus, from out of a life of unceasing prayer, with our work emerging out of that pool of unceasing prayer 
and returning to it and moving out and returning to it. For as Eugene Peterson notes, and what a devastating comment it is, how can I lead people into the quiet place beside the still waters if I am in perpetual motion? Peterson says this, I want the people who come to worship in my congregation each Sunday to hear the word of God preached in such a way that they hear its distinctive note of authority as God's word and to know that their own lives are being addressed on their own territory. A sound outline and snappy illustrations doesn't make that happening. This kind of preaching, and we might add this kind of service, is a creative act that requires quietness and solitude, concentration and intensity. All speech that moves men, contends R.E.C. Brown, was minted when some man or woman's mind was poised and still. I can't do that when I am busy. And Peterson has a, 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 an image that has just stayed with me for years from uh, Melville's Moby Dick, the image of the harpooner. And in the whaling boat, there is hectic activity. Okay, so people are going wild, expending all sorts of extraordinary energy. But, says Peterson and Melville, there is one man in the boat who is quiet and poised, waiting. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. From this, Peterson notes that it is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than to be overtaken what John Oman named the twin perils of, of ministry, flurry and worry. For flurry dissipates energy and worry constipates it. Ministry, as Jesus knew only too well, is all about God. See, and this is what Christian spirituality does. It decenters you. Now, that may sound so simple, but all the Old Testament wisdom literature has one thing in mind, to decenter us from the center so that God can be the center. The nature of fallen, broken human beings is we always aspire to be like and what you discover is as the Spirit is at work decentering you so that you can embrace your creatureliness, it's actually tremendously liberating because it's within our creaturely limits that we become fully alive and fully human. So Peterson says this now. I'm a bit cautious about reading this to you at this time in the academic year, but I leave today, so then you can beat up your profs or they can beat you up. He says this, I want to simplify your lives. When others are telling you to read more, I want to tell you to read less. Sorry, props. When others are telling you to do more, I want to tell you to do less. The world does not need more of you. It needs more of God. Your friends do not need more of you. They need more of God. And you don't need more of you. 
You need more of God. Now, finally, I just want to make a few comments on praying continually. And, you know, in Thessalonians, Paul exhorts the Thessalonian Christians, be joyful always, pray continually. And many have been perplexed about this. And uh, some of you may know that work, The Way of the Pilgrim, a Russian 19th century classic, which is an exploration of what Paul's exhortation might mean. One of my favorite authors, Jean-Louis Chrétien, uh, draws attention to the communal dimension of prayer in this regard, and it's a very beautiful and evocative uh, argument. He says there is at least one perpetual vocal prayer, namely that of the community in which when one member falls silent, another one takes over and starts to speak. This is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. St. Augustine describes the prayer of the church as the incessant prayer of one single person across space and time. Independently of this perspective, the singularity of prayer, which knows that it is one voice in the choir, one moment in a historical community of speech is clearly emphasized. However, perhaps Luke's description of Jesus gives us some important clues for what it means to pray continually. Jesus, as we have seen, so dwells in communion with the Father that verbal prayer emerges from this deep immersion in communion with the Father. In the tradition of Christian spirituality, it is often and rightly noted that the goal of our times of prayer is that they should spill over and pervade the whole of our lives so that there is a sense in which the totality of our lives becomes a prayer. Whether or not this is precisely what Paul had in mind, in terms of the example of Jesus, it is certainly a desirable goal. And here I want to quote John Vanier. Vanier says that to abide or dwell in Jesus is to make our home in him and to let Jesus make his home in us. We feel at home with him and in him. It is a place of rest for one another and presence to one another. It is a place of mutual indwelling and friendship. This rest is also a source of life and creativity. Abiding in him, we bear fruit we give life to others. We live a mutual indwelling. This indwelling is friendship. And so uh, my hope is that uh, through this brief time that I've had with you uh, in, uh, uh, here at Covenant College, really what I've just tried to remind you of is the one thing necessary. And if my own experience is anything to go by, the one thing necessary is almost always the first thing that goes. Now, I'm not suggesting you now start spending three hours a morning in prayer. Okay, probably at this time of the semester, that would be unwise. For some of you, what I'm suggesting is, because you're probably not praying at all, and that's not uncommon, that what you start prioritizing is five minutes a day. 
Okay? Now, what do you do in that five or ten minutes a day? And the answer is you don't just bring out your list. You know, so, so the next stage of all of this uh, that I would be uh, moving on to is concrete practices for what to do in the prayer time. And the tradition of Christian spirituality has got phenomenal resources. You know, one of my favorite authors, for example, has a long section on how to live afflictive emotions. So what do you do at this time of the year when there's rising anxiety or when that dreaded depression seems to be lurking around the corner or you develop road rage for your favorite prop and you can't understand what is going on? You know, we're all, and, and sadly, people your age now uh, are no strangers to afflictive emotions. And so, you know, what we do in prayer is we create the space for the Spirit to work in us. And when the Spirit does that work, you will find with time, He starts rearranging the furniture quietly. And things will start happening in your life. But there are also practices for how to deal with these kinds of things. And so I'll just give you uh, one very practical example. So, but I do want to encourage you, uh, uh, whatever, wherever you are, and that's one thing, by the way, in spirituality, you never start where you're not. That, that's the folly of us. We come to God trying to pretend. Well, how ridiculous. So if your prayer life has gone off the rails and a whole lot of else has gone off the rails, where do you start? Where you are. And what you'll discover is that God is already waiting there for you. And so what you prioritize is five or ten minutes a day during exam time. Then, if you can, you build in maybe three, five minutes in the day. And what you do there is you come to stillness and breathing can just help. Okay, you don't pretend what you're not. So you breathe in, you breathe out, you reflect on how you're feeling and you come as much as you can to stillness before God. And then a few minutes of that, and then you just take one verse of Scripture, and you reflect on that, and then a thing you can do is to imagine that Jesus is sitting next to you. And then you tell Jesus what you want to tell him. And then you come back to stillness, and then that's it for your time together. Just open towards God. Sometimes God will pitch up in amazing ways. Other times it will be like he's not there at all. That's irrelevant. You just keep these practices going. Eugene Peterson says, and boy, this is a winner with young people in our culture, right? The great secret of spirituality is repetition. You just keep pitching up. Okay. Now, uh, that's it from me. But I have a suggestion to make, and you tell me if you're open for this, we have about four minutes, that we do this now. Okay, then you've done one for the day, right? Okay, tick it off. And so what we do now is, however you are, so the first thing is get in touch with how you are. How am I feeling today? Okay, and especially the men, don't think about it. Okay, that's men are so jolly cerebral, aren't they? Women are often so much better at this. Just, how am I today? I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm energized, I'm happy, I'm really sad, I'm worried. Whatever it is, that's okay. 
So you get in touch with that, and then we come, we'll have just two minutes of stillness as you just open yourself to God. And then to make sure we're out of here by right time, I will then say the grace together, and if you know it, you join me in it. It goes like this, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. So let's use that as our entry into supper. And so if you know the grace, uh, do join me as we bless each other and as we say together, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen. Just one announcement. Uh, if for any reason you're interested in receiving the newsletter and the publications of the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics. Uh, if you just fill in one of these, ignore the donor bit, uh, then we have to have permission in Britain now because of privacy laws. We can't send you stuff without your permission. But if you want to receive our stuff, then you just need to fill in a card and then we'll add you to our list. But 
it's just been an enormous privilege for me to be here. And so wherever you are in your life, whatever's going on on the inside, can I leave you with one thought from Augustine? God is more on our inside than we are. So when you come to that stillness during the day, it doesn't matter what you're going through. God knows it much, much better than you do. And you can trust that he'll be waiting there for you. And that'll be my prayer as I go from Covenant College, that in these coming difficult weeks, that there'll be a surprising discovery of stillness and rest and peace in your lives. Thank you very much.